song on so many different dials Cause I got more hits than a disciplined child So when they see me, everybody barack, barracks Man, I'm like a young gun, fully black barack I try teardrops over the massive attack I only make Okay, okay, okay. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 199 of Electrified. I'm your host, Eric Lyons. We are officially in episode 200 territory. Episode 200 drops on Tuesday. But in order to get there, I want to look back at the 100s because, you know, life has changed. A lot has changed for me since I dropped episode 100 in 2020. I've grown as a man, a creator, um, you know, and, and this isn't. You know, something to, something slight to just say, oh, 200 episodes, yeah. It's hard, man. A lot of people do not even get past 20 episodes. And in my time doing this since 2018, I've seen podcasts come and go. This is not easy, man. Like, there have been, there's been multiple times where I've taken time off, months off, weeks off, and get upset with myself because I was like, damn, I could, I could have way more episodes right now, but... My plan is not God's plan. It's not always how that works. And I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. There's a reason I'm on episode 199 right now. There's a reason for that. There's a reason I've had to take times off to get myself together, my mental health together, to get my creativity back. There's a reason for that. And I never want to come in here and give you guys less than great. Never. I'll re-record an intro 50 times if I have to, if it doesn't sound right. You feel me? So, like, this is not easy, man. There's been multiple times where I've been like, mm, do I really want to do this anymore? They have. I'm, I'm very transparent. I, I, I don't, I don't want to hide anything, man. It, it's true. It's true. This is hard. This is hard sometimes. But with the support of my family, my girlfriend, most of all, bro, my biggest fan. Out of every, my biggest fan. She's here. She hears me record when I'm in my office. And she gets me. She gets, you know, what I go through, you know, when I'm struggling mentally. And she helps me through that. Um, you know, my family, my friends who support me as well, man. I appreciate that. And this is no small feat, man. 200 episodes is huge. 200 episodes is huge. And, you know, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, everybody who's around in my corner. And thank you to the listeners. Um because without you, there's no me. There's no electrified. I'm not talking to myself. Uh, shout out to DJ and Stadium Scene TV. DJ K, I appreciate you guys for sticking with me and bringing me on to the network a few years back. Um, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, man, thank you guys so much. Thank you. You know, and I'm already getting into uh, my speech for Tuesday. I didn't even write a speech for Tuesday. I, you know, it's probably going to be freestyle like this, but... I'm just, you know, giving everybody their flowers, man, because they deserve it. They deserve it. You deserve it. As a listener, you deserve it. Thank you. Um, but as far as today goes, man, looking back at the 100s, so much has happened in the sports world, but also in the real world, and I covered it all. Um, everything from the pandemic to the race relations, um, different scandals in sports, man, I've covered it all. And it was it was difficult for me to... Fine, you know, because I narrowed it down to five, like, you know, cutting it down to five segments to put on this episode of, you know, looking back on everything. But I did it. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a good one. I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, I don't want to take up too much time, like, in between talking about it. So 
my plan was to, you know, talk about each segment in between, but I think I'm going to just let them play through. Um, uh, I can tell you. I mean, if you guys look at the episode description, you'll see the time stamps and what is coming up first and second and third. There's five of them. Um, you got the Rooney Rule, you know, talking about that, black coaches, how they're treated, media and race relations, man. I played that 47 minutes. I think that's what I, the one I want to start with. I'll play that entire first 47 minutes from uh, Black Friday, episode one, uh, 108, um, because I felt that was a very powerful episode. Um, talk about the LSU sexual assault scandal. I feel like I really handled that well. I didn't think anybody else was really talking about that, so I felt like it was my responsibility to talk about it. Um, you also have the NIL deal stuff. Like, this is some really good stuff on here, man. Like, if you guys, if you know, this is for people who maybe haven't listened to these segments or you haven't heard them in a while and you hear them today, like, damn, he really spazzed. Like, yeah, I was cooking. I was cooking, man, cooking with grease. Uh, so yeah, uh, do, 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 do. yeah, so sit back, relax, enjoy, man. You don't have, there's no specific order. You have to listen to these and, uh, you can skim around, you know, check the timestamps and description for which segment you want to listen to first or however the case may be, but, uh, just enjoy it. Happy Saturday. Um, yeah, enjoy the, enjoy the episode. More importantly, be electrified. It's amazing to me. Why we keep loving this country, and this country does not love us back. And it's just, it's really so sad. Like, I should just be a coach. And it's so often reminded of my color. You know, it's just really sad. We got to do better. Uh, but we got to demand better. Like, we got, you know, it's, it's funny. We protest, and they send riot guards, right? Uh, they send people in riot outfits. They go to Michigan with guns, and they're spitting on cops, and nothing happens. The training has to change in the police force. The unions have to be taken down. my brother's keeper. And when you say the name Jacob Blake, make sure you say father, make sure you say cousin, make sure you say son, make sure you say uncle, but most importantly, make sure you say human. Human life. Let it marinate in your mouth, in your mind. A human life. Just like every single one of y'all and everywhere around here. We're human. And his life matters. So many people have reached out to me telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time. Longer than I can account for. It happened to Emmett Till. Emmett Till is my family. Philando, Mike Brown, Sandra, this has been happening to my family. And I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to. This is nothing new. 
I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry. And I'm tired. I haven't cried one time. I stopped crying years ago. I am numb. I have been watching police murder people that look like me for years. I'm also a black history minor. So not only have I been watching it in the 30 years that I've been on this planet, but I've been watching it for years before we were even alive. I'm not sad. I don't want your pity. I want change. Hey, yo, as we proceed to give you what you need, put your mother fist in the air. I don't care if you're white, you're black, Latino, Asian, Caucasian, Malaysian, whatever you are. As long as you're with this mother elevation. Because, see, as we proceed to give you what you need, you're scared. You're scared, man. That's why they be killing us and shooting us. That's why they feel uncomfortable around us. Because of our greatness. You're lucky God made us compassionate and forgiving. Man, they scared of us, Nas. We see that in your eyes. Okay, what's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is episode 108 of Electrified. I'm your host, Eric Lyons. Today's show will be different from any other show that you'll hear or have heard from me. Today, we won't be talking about the NBA playoffs, NFL training camp, NHL playoffs, the MLB season, What's going on in the totality of the world of sports Today we'll be talking about the real world And the games that are played in this country That don't have anything to do with a ball A bat A set of gloves Or any equipment of that nature These are the games that are played In the streets The games that are played In the police departments The games that are played at Capitol Hill. The games that are played in your local politician's office. We'll be talking about the real world today. The real problems that we face. The real problems that me, as a young black man, face. Like I said last night when I made the the, uh, statement before before today. This show isn't, this episode isn't here. I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. I'm not here to sway anybody's opinion. Because if you don't understand, you don't want to, and you are the problem. I'm not talking to the problem anymore. I'm talking to the people who want to be a part of the solution and want to move this country forward and try to get us out of this hellhole that we've been in. Before I get completely started, I just wanted to get a couple of things off my chest because that's all this is and all this is about event session uh, a better way to 
express myself. Like I've said, I've never been afraid to talk about issues, whether I'm talking about social injustices or things that have to do with women and sports, of anything of that nature. I'm not scared to use my platform. And today, I'm using my platform strictly for this. So, these conversations, if you couldn't make it through the intro, if you couldn't make it through the intro, then you should probably stop listening now. Period. Just want to say a couple of things before I get started. I don't people I don't think people truly understand how scary it is to be black. You think because you might live in a better neighborhood than somebody or you might have a degree, you might be a college student or you might have a good job. You know, you you might come from a two-parent home. With a good background. You can have all those things. You could have you could not have those things and still be a good a good person. That doesn't make you. Where you come from, your back that doesn't make you. But to be black it's a scary thing. I have white friends. Well if they have an interaction with the police, they don't have to worry about Am I going to make it out of this alive? They don't have to worry about will this result in me getting seriously hurt? Will this result in me losing my legs, losing my ability to see? Will I will my arm be broken today? Will I be able to walk after this? Will my spine be broken? Will my neck be broken? Will I be choked out tonight? They don't they don't really worry about that. But to be black, being pulled over in this country, in this climate, it's probably the scariest thing ever right now. Any police interaction. And it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing. It really is. In me, I don't have any fear in my heart. I fear nothing but God. But I am a realist. And I do understand the dangers that life presents. And I know that is one of them. I don't think people truly understand that. So when LeBron says it's scary to be black, he's, he, you know, he's afraid. It's a, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Also, before I get started, I would like to say Brian Erlock is a bitch. Point blank, period. No Super Bowls. Less tackles, way less tackles, way less Pro Bowls, way less you know defensive player of the years. Uh, no Madden cover, no Super Bowl appearance, no Super Bowl MVP. He's not Ray Lewis. He's a bitch. Um, you know, I hope they. I'm I'm proud of Chicago Bears for this dis, social distancing from him. He's a clown. Um, he was you know I, I don't respect Brian Urlacher, and that's all the energy I'll give him. But today, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to give you a history lesson. We're going to talk about what's going on in our country and what we can actually do to make change. But I want to start off 
before I get into what's going on, because this will, this will take me into my next. I'm gonna start off with media framing, and the kid, the the murderer, uh, Cal Rittenhouse, 17 year old, that launched uh, fire into a crowd of protesters, killed two people. That's where I want to start. Let's talk about media framing, real quick. Well, not real quick. Nothing, nothing today will be quick. So. Be ready to be here for a while, period. Because we're gonna talk about we're gonna we're, I'm going to take my time so you can hear me and feel me. So bear with me. <sighs> the media drowns out the message. First of all, this is I'm this is a, I'm reading what I'm about to be uh, talking to, talking from referencing. Is a um, an essay and a presentation I gave on media and race riots. This was a speech I gave. Uh, what year was that, bro? Twenty seventeen or eighteen? So this is where my point of reference is from. The media drowns out the message and promotes the violence, chaos, and anger. That comes out of race riots in order to push a negative agenda onto black people. Tensions are as high as today as they were during the 1960s. When these tensions boil over into the streets and turn into demonstrations, you can always count on the media being there. Mass media outlets do not care about protesters being agitated by police in order to intensify a fever hot situation. They just want to display a negative look at the black community if race riots are a fuel then the media excuse me if race riots are a fire then the media is the fuel let's start off 1917 the east st louis riots the media is quite intelligent and knows how to manipulate the way that people think when a situation is driven by high emotion the media can use that to their advantage and write certain things to get a reaction out of people I read an article uh, that Terry Ann Knopf wrote titled Race Riots and Reporting. It quotes, even before the first outbreak, newspapers in the area seemed to play on the sensitivities of the people. In May, news stories told of an impeding residential quote unquote invasion by blacks. So basically, not only did the papers help ignite the incidents, they chose sides during the riots, like they were rooting for their favorite sports team. In the boxing world, when there's a big fight coming up, the boxers do press tours in order to hype and sell the fight. The media during this time decided to set the stage for a black versus white showdown before anything even happened. The St. Louis Republic tried to make it seem like the black people had more firepower and still lost in the altercation. The text states, what the news accounts of the time failed to mention was that whites had also carried weapons. Instead, the emphasis was on the automatic pistols and loaded revolvers and the possession of blacks. Knopf said, on the rare occasion when a white man was arrested, the local newspaper did not usually take trouble to do a story. Tulsa Riots, 1921. 
A white mob went into the black community of Greenwood and attacked the residents and their businesses. Clearly domestic violence, but some didn't see it that way. Chris and Messer and Patricia A. Bell wrote mass media and governmental framing riots of riots, the case of Tulsa 1921. Research on newspapers and government reports after the riots to see how the event was framed. The text states, although evidence from the Red Cross, victim residents, and a few National Guard reports suggest that black citizens were merely victims of mob action. Most local media outlets portrayed the riot as quote-unquote Negro uprising. The article says police practices and some actions contributed to the, ri- to the progression of the riot. Some of these actions included uh, deputizing white, cit- white civilians, providing guns to white civilians, and doing little to disperse the white mob in the first place. This is 1921. Not 2016, not 2020. This is 1921, but it sounds very familiar. I could have told you this was Ferguson. I could have told you this was Kenosha. I could have told you this was Atlanta. I could have told you this was um, Minnesota. Could have changed this to Minnesota 2020, Atlanta 2020. And would have all made sense. Please do not underestimate the power the police have. Don't ask to, don't underestimate that. So when you see these people, you know, when you see certain certain demonstrations and certain riots get get more fickle, don't just think it's the people. All right, look look a little closer. You'll you, <laughs> you'll see some things. The Watts riots, nineteen sixty five. Injustices against the black community are like thunder, and the riots that follow are the lightning. Since 1965, there have been a lot of perfect storms. The Watts riot in 1965 started with a very intense traffic stop between the family of Marquette Fry and police officers on the scene. The situation boiled over into eight days of unrest. Maria Koch uh, wrote, Would anybody listen? Media biased imaging of the culture of fear of African Americans during the Watts riots in 1965. Cook analyzed the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post in order to see how the media presented the Watts riot. She wrote, Every article examined from both papers makes a clear distinction between white slash Caucasian people and African American people or Negroes as they are called in these articles. And an analysis an analysis shows that the word Negro is used sixty eight times in the Washington Post and in the LA Times seventy four times. She refers to the theory of dominant white attitude which was strong in both newspapers. Once again, black people are the main attraction at the media circus. This is similar to when they call black people thugs. When when black people go out and and end up damaging some businesses in the name of justice, in the name of unrest, in the name of we tired of y'all killing us, in the name of Black Lives Matter, in the names of peaceful protests, y'all don't want to hear that, in the names of it started off peaceful, then y'all made it unpeaceful. So, you know what I mean? You, you see what I'm saying? But when... And some white kids go out 
flip some cards because their D three school won a rival game, or 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 some white kids or some Canadian kids go out and terrorize the town because the Canucks won a game. Like, do you, it's okay. Nah. Nah. They're thugs too. Detroit riots, 1967. Fast forward to 1967 and television has come to be a leading source of news. Now the cameras are capturing live footage and showing people all over the world all types of images. Benjamin D. Singer wrote Mass Media and, Com- and Communication Processes in the 19 and excuse me in the Detroit riot of 1967. 499 black men who were arrested during the riots were interviewed. According to Singer, the majority of the participants had college degrees and gave their views on how the media showed the riot on TV. The table was called Perceptions of What People Were Doing During the Television Riot Sequences. Violent Acts uh, Against Persons, 49.8%. Looting, 21%. Peaceful Demonstrations, 7.2%. This was before the pay-per-view era. But the mass media was showing the violence on primetime television like it was a Saturday night fight card. Instead of trying to show that there was a balance by showing the peaceful demonstrations, they highlighted the violence and negativity. This is 1967. Once again, I can put this on Baltimore, 2015. Ferguson, 2015, 2016. Minnesota, 2020. Kenosha, 2020. Portland, 2020. D.C., 2020. New York, 2020. Nine times out of ten, these peaceful protests start off peaceful. These police officers, they come in with their riot gear. They're already amped up. They want to do something. I've seen the, I've seen video of an officer amped up, ready to do something crazy. Waiting for somebody to try him. And his own man had to tell him to calm his ass down. They want that. They come out looking for the smoke. Because they know they, they got the tear gas. They got the rubber bullets. They, get, they got the riot gear on. They want that. So they go out. They agitate the situation. And it boils over. And now all of a sudden. Oh. They're rioting. Oh look at the looting. But it always starts off the the one thing that's always the constant in this. People always tell that we're there. We always say, started off peaceful. Started off peaceful. But the media they don't they don't, they don't show that side. They don't. They don't. Nineteen ninety two, L.A. riots. There's a documentary on everything I'm about to talk about right here on Netflix. Very hard to watch. But I would, I definitely, now would be the time to watch it. Whew. Sue Kwong Oh and Justin Hudson wrote Framing and Reframing the 1992 LA Riots, a study of minority issues framing by the LA Times and its readers. Text stated How did the main, mainstream newspaper and its readers discuss minority related issues differently before, during, and during the 1992 riots? It's quite interesting to see how much mainstream media and society as a whole care about issues before the outrage starts. The phrase, numbers don't lie, 
heavily applies to this study. By searching the names of Rodney King and Latasha Harlins, the number of stories related to them were uh, found in specific time frames. According to the study, from March 17, 1991 to December 14, 1991, there were a total of 96 stories written about King and Harlins. In comparison to 133 stories written about the riots from April 30, 1992 to May 29, 1992. So the final score of Rodney and Harlan's versus the riots was 133 to 96 in favor of the riots in a much shorter time span. And of course, the officers involved in the Rodney King beating were acquitted and the woman who killed Latasha Harlan's murdered her was convicted on voluntary manslaughter, not first degree murder. In conclusion, the main concept that I was able to pull from all of this research was framing. I think about an actual picture frame when framing is discussed because that is what it reminds me of. Putting one thing into focus while ignoring or not showing everything around it. That is what the media has been doing to race relations over the past 100 years. And clearly it continues to do. So let's go to the fast forward to today. August 2020. Jacob Blake was shot seven, ten, seven times in his back. We're going to get to that. But let's start. Let's keep on the media. And it's Kyle Wright. Uh, Kyle. What's his kid's name? Kyle Rittenhouse in the media. So let's start off with this right here. Fox News, Tucker Carlson said, are we, are, oh wow, are we really surprised that looting and arson accelerated to murder? How shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? This is the, I mean, I'm not surprised by this. This is Fox News. But this is someone with a bigger, a way bigger platform than me. Is condemning murder. He's condemning murder. It's okay. It's okay if a white kid does it. That's that's he justified murder. I want to say did their police chief say something like this wouldn't happen if if people were in during uh curfew? He said something like that, bro. Something of that nature. So here's what um, here's what we know about this this guy. So he supported Blue Lives Matter, which which isn't real. Blue Lives Matter is not a real thing. Uh, it it makes me laugh when, especially you know, in this area, when I see people with the uh, the Blue Lives Matter flags, I guess. It's hilarious because blue lives don't exist. There are no blue people. Um, the only blue people that I know personally are the Smurfs. Um, good people. Great people love the Smurfs. Shout out to Papa Smurf. Um, but police officers, they're not blue. They don't bleed blue. Blue Bloods, that's the cool show, but they're not. They don't bleed blue. 
Um, they're they're on black, white, Latino, all types of colors. They're not blue though. They're not blue. And to be that delusional, to put more value more value into blue lives matter that don't exist, while at the same time devaluing Black Lives Matter. Which actually, which black lives do actually exist. There are black people who actually are alive and living and are dying in this country. I think that's pretty laughable. You can put so much energy into hating a group of people while supporting <laughs> people of a figment. Of, like it's, it's basically like you're fans of the Avengers. They're not real. They're not a real thing. That's like saying um, all elves matter or elves lives matter. They're not real. Santa Claus isn't real. Blue lives matter doesn't exist. Please get that through your thick skulls. Once again, I'm not talking to you people. I'm not talking to my guys, my people, because we know that already. I'm sure we know that already. So he murdered. Innocent people. Not only did he kill two innocent people, he did it in the presence of police. Police were there. They were there. You walked right past them. Like he had the Harry Potter cloak of invisibility on. With an AR-15. Not a pistol. Not nothing that was in his dip. It was on his shoulder like he was in Iraq. He didn't have to reach for it. It was out. Also, I read something that said, and I believe in Wisconsin, but I think he's from Illinois. I'm not sure, but you're not even supposed to have. You 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 can't be licensed to carry under 18. Just something to think about. So, <sighs> this is crazy, man. So he murdered two innocent people on camera. In the presence of police And was able to be lawfully arrested Survived this arrest With no injuries So he was arrested Lawfully arrested While Sandra Bland died After a traffic stop Mike Brown died With his hands up Man, so when we talk about the media and the framing of certain events or certain people, it's clear as day. And as many times as we see it, you think they would stop, but now it's just redundant and they're doing it on purpose because we're not dumb. We see it, we see you, we know the vibes already, we know what type of time y'all on. It's nothing new, it's 2020. We've all seen these movies before. So the New York Post, two different headlines. Jacob Blake had a knife in his car when he was shot by police, says DOJ. There's a headline. Here's another one. 
Suspect, suspected teen, excuse me, suspected teen gunman Kyle Rittenhouse spotted cleaning Kenosha graffiti uh, um, before shooting. Come on, dog. Somebody, and then I read another article, I read another headline that called him a vigilante. The hell? Dude, not no damn. He's not. He's not no damn anti-hero. He's not racist, bat. Like they trying to make dude seem like racist, Batman. Like he's not Sting coming to save us from the NWO, bro. He's a murderer. He's a coward. Of of of, of uh, before anything, he's a coward. Shooting into a crowd of innocent people was cowardly. Cowardly. And you know what the police did for him? Oh, here's a bottle of water. Like what? Oh yeah, he was he was scraping off graffiti. Before he did this. So oh man, it's alright. Dylan Roof went to a church. Had Bible study. Then killed everybody there. What are you saying? Oh, oh yeah. He was also lawfully arrested. Survived his arrest. They even took him to Burger King. So they probably took old Kyle to Red Lobster. You want to take some Cheddar Bay Biscuits with you before we take you to booking? Tuh. <sighs> Remember when Trayvon Martin... Left this earth Remember that Feel like a long Feel like 15 years ago Don't it I remember how young I was Under trying to understand That situation But remember that When they kept calling him A thug When they kept calling him A thug He was a thug Kept Kept showing us a picture When he was With the hoodie on Oh this thug That this thug That Look at his Instagram He putting his middle fingers up Look he had fronts Look at the type of stuff he posted. Remember when Mike Brown left this earth? Also, speaking of Mike Brown, if you there's a documentary it was on Stars. I don't know if it's on there anymore. You can probably find it. I believe it's called. Oh man, hold on. Hold on. This documentary I watched this I think two years ago, last year, moved me to tears. Um, Stranger Fruit. Yeah. Watched this cup like three years ago. Stranger Fruit, Mike Brown documentary. Read, watch that, please. Um, but remember when he left this earth, and they kept calling him a like a man, like this man died, this man, right? Mike Brown was eighteen, just graduated. Eighteen. Mike Brown was a teenager. When you turn eighteen, when I turned eighteen, I wasn't I didn't consider myself to be a man. I was I'm still a teenager. Mike Brown was eighteen. But the media wanted us to believe that he was such a a grown up. He was so big, he was so grown. As if he was in his thirties. Bro, he was eighteen, a kid, a baby. Ain't know nothing yet. But the media kept pushing. Oh, he was a man. He was a man. This eighteen year old man. This eighteen year old man. This eighteen year old man. But 
they want Rick Rittenhouse to remember this being racist Batman instead of the killer and coward that he is. That's what the media does. So backtrack to Jacob Blake. So here's the thing about this. Here's how I feel about this. I clicked on a video. I saw the video, the first video of uh, the shooting itself. Now what led up to it. For my mental my genuine general well-being I don't want to see anymore I saw all I needed to see I saw somebody get shot seven times in their back not their front their back their back that's what I saw so he was attempting to open his car door His back was turned. How threatening could somebody be with their back turned in such a close vicinity? Like, think about it. His back was turned. Car door was open. Space and opportunity was limited. If he did reach for something, by the time he turned around, he wasn't going to be able to do nothing with it. If you guys handled it right. It's three officers. One man with his back turned. Who knows what he was doing in there? We don't know. The point is, if your guns weren't in your hands, if your hands were available, how hard would it have been to tackle him? Turned around. He's turned around. Grab him. Stop him from what he's doing. Wrestle him. Tussle him. Struggle with them like you do your your your, your non colored suspects. Give them a chance, but your your guns are drawn. Your guns are drawn. You don't have hands. Your hands are both hands are on your weapons. If at least one of you didn't have your weapon drawn, your hands would have been free, and you could have grabbed them. You could have grabbed them. Space and opportunity, people. This is just this is this has nothing to do with being an officer. This is just common sense. Space and opportunity. If I'm trying to get somebody and they're that close with their back turned, why is my gun out? I can grab you from right here. You right there. I can reach out and touch you. So if I can reach out and touch you, that means I can grab you. That mean I can I can pull you away from whatever you're trying to do. I can subdue you. But no, their guns were drawn. So the whole comply and don't die thing that you people talk to me, talk to me about. Beat, you've been beating that dead horse for so long. Boy, you know what I mean? The comply and don't die, do this, do that. And you won't end up here. You won't end up there, right? When this year, this year, we saw... Rayshard Brooks talks to the police for over 40 minutes, complied, and he's no longer with us. So what the hell do you want us to do? We do the right things. 
still end up in the ground or like Jacob Blake paralyzed from the waist down? Just a question. So all the complier die BS. Don't want to hear that. Don't want to hear that. And it's always interesting to me when people want to tell you what you should do in a situation where your life is on the line, a situation they've never been in, a a situation they probably will never be in themselves. So how the hell can you tell me or another person what I should do in this situation when you will never, ever, ever know or be family, family with anyone who will be in that situation? So for those people, I tell them to go to hell. And I'm tired. I'm tired of tell of people telling us with the victims, victims, because they are victims. They are victims. Just because somebody with a badge kills me, kills someone, doesn't mean doesn't make them doesn't make us less of a victim. They're still a victim. They're not criminals. They weren't. They're not convicts, inmates. They're civilians. Civilians' lives. These are officers. They have the badge. They have the. I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes. They have the training. They're killing the civilians. The people they're supposed to protect and serve. But instead, they're beating and murdering them. So, tired of telling, tired of hearing y'all say what the victims should do or should have done a little differently. What about what the officers should do differently? What about the way they conduct themselves? What about how they go about these situations? Because I'm not buying the fear for my life bullshit no more. Excuse my language, but I'm not. No way in hell are you going to tell me three officers, not one, not two, but three officers with pistols drawn or scared am i going to be scared when i'm looking to my left and i see his two shooters am i scared if i look to my my right and i see my man he got it on him and my man behind me got it on him and we looking at a dude whose back is towards us and he don't got nothing i'm scared seriously i'm fearing for my life somebody ain't coming towards me He's not running towards me. He is two inches away from me. His back is turned. I got a strap. My man got a strap. And my other man, he got one too. I'm supposed to believe those three guys were scared? No way am I believing that. The system is so messed up. That these officers are really not being trained. They don't know what they're doing in these situations. A lot of them really are out there. With other things on their minds. And it's just like bro. You cannot keep hiring these type of people. But the system is so broken. You can't get rid of them. Even if you hire Even if there are, you know, you hire the good cop. 
get a, a handful of good cops. These unions, all they're going to do is, hey, buddy, get the hell out. You don't want to be in our gang? Get out. This is how we're going to we do things and we'll continue to do things. Unfortunate, isn't it? Very sad. So stop asking what the victim should have done differently. Stop asking what the civilian should have done differently. Because we as civilians, we're not trained for that. We aren't the ones. We're not at work. We're not. We're not. We don't, we're, being a, a civilian isn't a job. Being a civilian, I don't have a badge. I don't have a badge. I don't wear a uniform. This is me. My black skin is in a uniform. I don't wear a badge. I don't wear a funny looking hat. I don't have a, a squad car. I don't have a gun. I don't have a taser. I have a nice stick. I don't have handcuffs. I'm not the one who went to went to uh, through police school or whatever the hell they do. They are. They're the ones that are trained for these type of situations. And if all of these situations keep ending up with people dying or seriously messed up from being beaten or shot, something is wrong. Something is wrong. People, I tried to look at the numbers of of how many people police the police officers have killed not only this year but in years previous there were so many different numbers and charts i couldn't even get it for you i tried it made my head hurt that's how bad this is this isn't anything that i'm just making up these are real things that are happening and they have to stop And I was I was very surprised to hear that Jacob Blake survived this, and I was relieved. Unfortunate, you know, the state they left him in, but thank God he's still with us. And not only am I am I thinking about Jacob Blake, I'm thinking about his two sons who were in the car when their father was shot seven times just like the girlfriend of Philando Castillo's daughter she was there when Philando Castillo was murdered she was right in the backseat when officer Geronimo Giannis shot and killed Philando Castillo Then people talk about his criminal history, which is murky. Never convicted of anything. People call him all sorts of names. So you're telling me his criminal history, which you barely know anything about. So because of his criminal history, uh, you know, there should be no reason for this to be okay. Want to talk about somebody's criminal history? Look at your presidents. Then we can talk. It's much worse. It's much worse. Um, so I don't want to hear that. Nothing. Nothing about this is okay. Nothing about this is okay. At all. 
at all. Um, Praise up for Jacob Blake's family. Um, the families of the people who were murdered by a coward in house. The family of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Rashad Brooks. We're tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. So, that's what's going on in the world, people. All right, so I believe it was a couple of days ago that the rule for the new uh, NFL the NFL minority rule was passed. This was um, something that was talked about a couple of a couple of months ago, and I didn't like it when I first heard about it. I didn't like it, and I, and they tabled it. They put it away. They said they weren't going to do it. All right, cool. They weren't going to do it, and then now they're doing it. So it, it, it really did bother me. It bothered me. It still bothers me that they're doing this. So let's get into this. All right. Affirmative action. Affirmative action is a policy in which an individual's color, race, sex, religion, or national origin are taken into account to increase opportunities provided to an uh okay i'm sorry my hand right <laughs> an underrepresented part of society once again affirmative action a policy in which an individual's color race sex religion or national origin are taken into account to increase opportunities provided to underrepresented parts of society the rooney rule NFL policy that requires league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coach and senior football operation jobs. Once again, the Rooney Rule. Uh, NFL policy that requires league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coaching and senior fo uh, football operation jobs. The NFL has three black head coaches. Mike Tomlin. Anthony Lynn and Brian Flores. Two black offensive coordinators, Eric Bieniemy and Byron Leftwich. Ten black defensive coordinators. Two black GMs, Cleveland's Andrew Berry and Miami's Chris Greer. 
The league is virtually 70% black. You have a football league. You have a league of players. Built up of black athletes, black talents. Some of the best players on the planet are black in the NFL. But the masterminds, the people in charge, are not, they're not black. Three black head coaches in the year 2020. Once again, there are three black head coaches in the NFL in the year 2020. The first black head coach in the modern era, in the modern era, was in 1989. Excuse me, 1986. 1986. That's when we got the first black coach in the NFL, in the modern era. 1986. Art Shell. The first black head coach in the modern era. Now, Fritz Pollard, that's back in the 20s. Now, I, I wasn't around yet. I don't think any of you guys were around yet, but not back in the 1920s. There was a man named Fritz Pollard. He was black. Not only did he assist, he was basically a co-coach, right? A co-coach, and he played. And then after his playing career, he would end up going to make a team full of just black players. He coached a team full of black players and played and coached uh, against other teams. But Fritz Pollard, back in the 1920s, before the NFL, before the NFL became the NFL, and then 1989, Art Shell became the first black head coach. So in 1989, there was one black head coach. Here we are in 2020. There are three black head coaches. Does that sound like progress to you? Changing a team's name. Putting some lo- putting some decals on a helmet. That's that's not progressive. Yeah, sure. We're ch- we're making changes. Like I said, I don't I don't like to do that. I've said this in the past. I don't ask why now. I try not to do that. But you changed, you know, you changed your football team's name. Good. You you know, years later, you just realized that the Washington football's team name was racist. Cool. You, you fixed that. Cool. 2020 made a lot of people realize that, that police brutality and, and racism actually still very much exists in 2020. Cool. The NFL finally got that. Cool. Put in racism on the field. Where, what, what did they say? Oh, it takes all of us. Put, the, put in racism on the helmet. Put the names of black people who were slain by the police on the back of the helmets. Cool. Cool. But that doesn't change the fact that there are three black head coaches in the league. 32 teams, three black head coaches. The league is 70% black, though. I'm not blaming this directly on the NFL, the entire NFL. I'm not going to blame that on, you know, on the league. I'm talking to the 32 owners, the the GMs, you know what I mean? The people in power. They make the calls. They make the decisions. 
They're the reasons why we have the Rooney Rule right now. You have to interview a person of color when you're trying to find a new head coach, new GM, or you know any senior ops position. You have to do that because of the Rooney Rule. Does that mean you have to hire them? No. But you have to give them a, a chance. So, the new rule. Teams will now be compensated draft picks for losing minority staff members to head coaching jobs elsewhere and premium jobs. So now, when... When a black staff member goes off and becomes a head coach or, you know, gets promoted from uh, a, a position coach to an OC somewhere else or they go and, and become a, a GM or something like that, the team gets draft picks when they go. Now, it may not, saying it and some of you hearing it, it might not sound crazy. To you, but let me let me let me break it down for you. Break it down for you, so you can fully understand. You're rewarding teams for basically being diverse in 2020. It's like thank you, thank you for uh, having somebody black in your coaching staff in the year 2020. So here, since you did that. Since, since you did that Here's some draft picks for you Somebody help me understand that You're giving a team You're giving teams a bonus Instead of the minority coach Who was being promoted I mean think about it this way I don't even think I would be mad If Like, if a coach go to a new team and they get the draft picks, but then again, that's that's hiring them. I mean, that's that's rewarding them for hiring a black coach. So either way, it's nasty. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. It's, it's not a good look. Please tell me why the Chiefs need to be compensated if and when Eric Bieniemy goes out and gets a head coaching job. Think about it this way, people. Think about it this way. If you're not if you're not understanding the problem. That's like a university, a PWI, predominantly white institution. That's like if they get a hundred thousand dollars after a black student graduates. Once again, this is like <laughs> a PWI getting a hundred thousand dollars every time a black student graduates from their school. Doesn't that sound a little a little bit racist right there? Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna enroll more black students so that way when they graduate, we get a hundred thousand dollars. Think about it this way. The white run organization gets a pat on the back for their black student or employee. Finding outside success 
it's like they're trying to credit teams for their success. It's like they're saying the Chiefs by 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 Eric Bieniemy working with the Chiefs and and under Andy Reid, we've we've built him up to be the man that he is today. So he, he so he can go out and get a head coaching job. That's what it looks like to me. That's what it looks like. It looks like they're giving the organizations the credit and not the coach. Not the coach. That's what it looks like to me. Another another minority Coach who should be up for a head coaching job after this season should have been after this past season. Robert Sa- Robert Sala. I might be pronouncing his name wrong. Sailor Sala. You guys know the the uh, the Forty Nine ers defensive coordinator, bald head hype dude. He's not black, but he's in the minority. He's not white. In this case, we have to lump everybody together because it's so small. There are my the, the minority representation in the NFL when it comes to coaching is minuscule. It's minuscule. So let's say Robert Saylor go, go go gets a job. Say he goes this offseason, he ends up coaching um the Falcons, maybe. Because that, that job will be open after this season. The 49ers will get compensatory picks for that. Really? Imagine giving a team compensatory picks for Robert Saylor's work last season, the 49ers last season. That that defense that defense took them to the Super Bowl. Credit Kyle Shanahan, you know, for the run game. But ultimately that 49ers defense, big part of their success, correct? Now imagine the 49ers without Robert Saylor last year. Imagine the Chiefs with no Eric Bieniemy. Would those teams look a little different? I think so. So how can you congratulate organizations for the work that one man or one or two men have accomplished? Tell me that. Tell me that. Tell me why the Chiefs deserve compensatory picks when Eric Bieniemy, with with the help of Andy Reid, but Eric Bieniemy is the offensive coordinator, had the 2018 Chiefs looking like the greatest show on turf. How do they get that? It looks crazy to me. It looks crazy. Like I said, it's like they're rewarding them for for growing them and their success. No way. No way. No way. No way. That that's not right. They didn't teach how Eric Benemy how to run the offense. They didn't teach him how to how to draw up a play. They didn't teach him that. He knew that coming in. That's why he got the job. So help me understand how this how this is this rule makes any sense or it's not offensive. Because it's offensive as hell to me. It don't make no sense to me. And I can't be the only one who feels this way. I can't. 
Imagine if Bill Belichick got draft picks for all the coordinators and assistants who went on to become head coaches. That'd be kind of crazy, right? Because he only had one black one go out. You know what I mean? <laughs> Brian Flores, he goes out. He's the head coach of the Dolphins. What if he got picks for that? That would be kind of crazy, I think. It don't make no sense to me. It's just some some things just don't need to be done. Doesn't. And you talk about progression and 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 changing and making change and oh this is gonna make change and then, well, how? How so? How so? Like I said, nineteen eighty nine, there was one black head coach. The first one at that. It's twenty twenty. There are three black head coaches. What progress have we made? What progress have we made? The league is seventy percent black. There are three black head coaches. What progress have we made? And you're talking about progressive. You know, this new rule, this 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 new minority rule with these you know, these picks. This is as progressive as states and city, you know, stopping police officers from choking people to death. It's like, hey, you know what I mean? You're not supposed to do that, but hey, we're going to tell you not to. That's not prog- that's not progress. That's just something that should already that's something that already that should that shouldn't be done. What I'm saying is, you shouldn't get a pat on the ass for doing the right thing. It it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. This rule makes me mad, and it makes me look at the NFL very funny. But I mean, we all have had something to look at the NFL funny about over these last four years, though. So this is just piling it on. Just piling it on. You want to be mad about something when you talk about the NFL? This is something that you should be mad about. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than this. It's it's, it's way deeper than this. Talk about the overall perception of black coaches in the National Football League. Less room for error. Like I said, when we talked about the black quarterback a couple of weeks ago with the Dwayne Haskins situation, I touched on this briefly, and I told you guys that I would come back to this another time. Did I know it was going to be this fast? No, I did not. But another time has arrived, so it's time to talk about it. Black coaches. Less room for error. You don't have you don't have a chance to be bad as a black coach. You don't have the opportunity to grow. You can't be average. You got to be Tony Dungy, Mike Tomlin. You got to play. You got to be up there. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground for black head coaches in the NFL. Their lifespan is much shorter than and than white head coaches, and you can't tell me otherwise. All you got to do is your Googles, and you can see that. Or be an adamant fan of the game, or have a working brain, and you can see that. Black coaches and black quarterbacks, they're virtually the same. That Their white counterparts can be average for years and remain in their position. But black black quarterbacks, black coaches, they don't get that luxury to be average. 
Let's look at Mike Tomlin. Tuesday, I talked about Mike Tomlin and how he's the most winning black coach in football history. And I mean, you know, 14 seasons, no losing seasons. I talked about that. Let's talk about that. No losing seasons. Only went eight and eight three times. One and one in the Super Bowl. Missed the playoffs only five times in 14 seasons. Only five times in 14 seasons that he missed the playoffs. You talk about that, right? You hear his track record. Good track record, right? Don't sound don't sound too crazy. Now you look at let's look at another black head coach. Todd Bowles. Todd Bowles coached for the Jets for a couple of years, right? He's now the uh defensive coordinator down in Tampa. Down in Tampa. So Todd Bowles in four seasons, his first season with the Jets, started ten and he went ten and six. They almost went to the playoffs that year. I remember that season. Five and he went five and eleven twice, four and twelve. That's four seasons. Four seasons. He was fired after three seasons of losing. That's only four seasons. You go ten and six your first year. Three straight losing seasons. Then he was gone. Now, I talked about this on Twitter, and I asked somebody say, you know, it's not a not a truly fair comparison when I talk about Jason Garrett's tenure in Dallas. Now I get that Jerry Jones is an anomaly. He's an odd man. I don't know why he kept Jason Garrett around for so long, but it still it still works. Everything is circumstantial. Absolutely, the Jets and the Dallas organization they're both. Eh, you know, they're not that great. So, I can make this comparison. And I will make this comparison. Let's look at Jason Garrett. His first three seasons as a head coach for the Dallas Cowboys, they went 8-8. Eight and eight, Three times. Three times. Three straight times, they went 8-8. Eight and eight. That's not a playoff record. Even in the NFC East, that's not a playoff record. Only made the playoffs three times in nine seasons. Three times. Jason Garrett started his career off with three straight losing seasons. Not losing seasons, but eight and eight. That's a losing season to me. Three straight. He didn't get fired. He got six more years. Started off average. Finished average. Three seasons of average got him six more. But Todd Bowles, three seasons of average below par, and he was gone. Do you see what I'm on? Do you, do you see the problem there? Everybody should be held accountable the same way. If you're not good at what you do, if the team you have is not good, you 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 average. You're gone. But somehow Jason Garrett managed to stick around, and now he's an now he's an offensive coordinator for the Giants. Somebody tell me how the Giants are doing this season. Not very well. Is that right? Oh, I I just thought I was. I mean the the, the Buccaneers defense looking kind of good down there. Shout out to Todd Bowles, but I I'm just making an observation. 
I'm just making an observation. That's all. That's all I'm doing. Now back to Mike Tomlin. Let's talk about the media. I want to talk about the media, and their and their. I wouldn't say scrutiny is a tough word, but the media always tries to paint certain narratives, whether it's about a player, a coach, organization, and this was this was that's not a black or white thing. That's with anybody. We all know how the media is. The media, they take a narrative, they run with it. They paint a narrative, they run with it. I get that. That's the media. But let's let's take let's take a look at something. I'm gonna go back to Mike Tomlin, right? 2013. Still started 0 and 3 in 2013. They was already asking. They was asking if he was on the hot seat. After three games, <laughs> they were asking if Mike Tomlin was on the hot seat. These are real articles I was reading. Three games. Not 0 and 8. 0 and 6. 0 and 3. It was still September. This is 2013. Couple years removed from Super Bowl appearance. And they talking about it was Mike Tomlin on the hot seat. You look fast forward this past offseason. Multiple articles over this last offseason. Analyst. Is Mike Tomlin on the hot seat? Could Mike Tomlin be fired after the season if the Steelers don't have success? Two, two, two straight years without the playoffs, it might be time for Mike Tomlin. His stay in Pittsburgh might be done. Like I said, everything is circumstantial. You talk about these past two seasons. He lost Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. Two of the biggest pieces to that offense at that, at that time. Not only did he lose that, but we need to give Mike uh, Mike Tomlin credit for keeping that locker room. Not only did he keep it together, but all that stuff in house. We didn't know about AB having problems with Ben. We didn't know about the Le'Veon Bell situation until they came out, until they got out of Pittsburgh. And then all the can you know until he wanted out of Pittsburgh, all the can of worms opened up. Mike Tomlin kept that in house. It takes a hell of a head coach to do that, by the way. But he loses two star players, right? Last season, Ben gets season ending surgery. So Mike Tomlin, three of the stars that made the Steelers so good. These last five to ten years are gone. Who was the Steelers quarterback last season? Mason Rudolph. What is Mason Rudolph known for? Getting smacked with his own helmet by Miles Garrett. That was the highlight of Mason Rudolph's uh, season last year. Another highlight is when he got knocked silly against the Ravens and he had to... uh, Unscrew with a screwdriver, this face mask off, and he walked out of the stadium looking nuts. But that's what Mike Tomlin was dealing with. And they still had a chance to go to the playoffs at the end of the season. Eight and eight. Still, that Steelers team was playing, and they were in games. They were not losing by much last season. Go look at it. That that Steelers team still had a shot. That's coaching. And now, not only did he write the ship 
after two years of a, of a, of a mess in Pittsburgh, the Steelers are 8-0, and number one in the AFC. Not the Chiefs, not the Ravens, not the Titans, not the Texans, not the Bills. Nobody that was in, in the playoffs last year. The Steelers, who missed the playoffs last year, are 8-0 and and number one in the AFC. I don't hear none of that hot seat BS right now. I don't hear nobody calling for Mike Tomlin's head right now. I don't hear none of that. It's quiet for y'all. The apology should be as loud as the disrespect was. Everybody owes Mike Tomlin an apology. Is Mike Tomlin on the hot seat? Is it is his stay in Pittsburgh almost up? Have y'all lost your damn minds? That's what I'll be talking about. We don't get the same luxury. There's no time to be average as a black head coach. You either you have to win, but if you lose, you're gone. You can't be in the middle. You can't have ups and downs. Only ups. Only ups. You can only win. They only like you when you're up. They only like you when you're up. And that's a fact. That's a fact. Now let's go look at Anthony Lynn. I was talking about the Chargers on Tuesday. The best 2-6 team in football. Easily could be 8-0. Now I look on Twitter. You know, fans are frustrated. Rightfully so. You got a good team. You got a good rookie quarterback. You guys feel like you should be better than you are. And I, I agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Now, the media, they, they a lot of media heads, they're not watching a bunch of football. They're not watching every game. They're not watching every single detail. Now, fans of these teams, they see these teams week in, week out. They know the ins and outs of their team. They're super fan. They know what the problem is. A lot of Chargers fans feel like it's the offensive coordinator's problem. He's the problem. Shane, I don't know what this guy's last name. Shane something, the offensive coordinator of the of the LA Chargers. Calls the plays. Calls the plays. One more time. He is the play caller for the offense. So when you talk about the Chargers offense, blowing, you know, you talk about the Chargers blowing double digit leads. Five double digits lead leads they blew. That comes down to conservative play calling and bad clock management. You know who that falls on? Your offensive coordinator. And this Chargers team has just had a lot of misfortune. Missed field goals. Bad calls from the refs. And just all in all, it's just been a lot of bad luck. How can we blame that on Anthony Lynn? How can we blame that on Anthony Lynn? I just want to know why the media is so focused on him getting his head chopped off and him, you know, getting him out of L.A. I don't get it. This is only his third, what's this, what, third or fourth season with L.A.? It went 12-4 and four his first season. And it's just been two down years. But like I said, this Chargers team isn't getting blown out every week. They've lost by eight points or less every week. So that's 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 the little things. 
It's the little things. That's not all on him. It's not. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair. They, 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 they've created this narrative that is all on him. Now, I want to talk about a specific article. A very specific. This is this. Who is this? The, um, the Yardbreaker. This is a Yardbreaker article. Look it up. You can Google. Just Google. You don't even have to type the word fired in. Google Anthony Lynn, and it'll be about eight to ten articles about why he should be fired right now. That's all you got to do. And this, this, this is what the article wrote. If you look back at Anthony Lynn's coaching career, it's important to note one thing. He was only an offensive coordinator for one year before the Chargers had him. That season saw the Bills ranked 30th in passing offense. Now, now, now we're going to break this one down. This, this is all, all I needed was one quote. And I could tell y'all why this is a problem. Let's look at the first part of that. He was only an offensive coordinator for one year. So that statement right there implies that you're trying to say he's inexperienced. And by that, you know, he it disqualifies him to be a head coach. Okay, so you're saying that's that that part right there plays a part in why the Chargers are having success because he was only an offensive coordinator for one season so that means that's why the Chargers are so bad okay cool let's 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 stay with that right there right let's stay with the the inexperienced one right there right let's stay with that who was i talking about before the season started joe judge what did i say before the season started who the hell is joe judge i i, I could i thought i said that about 15 times I thought I said that. The same Joe Judge who got this head co- head coaching job because he had a cup of coffee with Bill Belichick. And by that, I mean he was never an offensive coordinator. He was never a defensive coordinator. What experience does he have? No, no, he's never ran an offense. But somehow he's fit to run a football team. And that football team is ass out right now. They're not good. They're not good. They're not good. A lot of these white coaches, I'm sorry. I don't want to do this, but it has to be said. They don't have that much experience running anything but teams into the ground. Directly into the ground. So don't try to make Anthony Lynn's uh, one season in offensive coordinator minute school. Don't try to look down on that. And then, and then what was real cute? You know what I mean? Because they kept it real cute. I thought it was cute that they said that the Bills, you know, because he was he was the OC for the Bills that season. I thought it was cute that they said the Bills ranked thirtieth in passing offense, but they failed to mention how the damn Bills were had a franchise setting, a franchise record setting season running the football, third all time. Rushing yards and touchdowns that season. You know why? People, all you got to do is your Googles. It's not that hard to know why the Bills were having so much success running the ball that season. Do you know who Anthony Lynn was before he got into coaching? He's a two-time Super Bowl winning, winning running back. You know what he did after that? He was a running backs coach. Assistant running backs coach. Run first. 
That's why the hell the Bills weren't passing the ball that much. Don't make it seem like the Bills were trying to be a passing team and they just didn't have success. No, they were running the football down people's throats. Therefore, I'm pretty sure their running offense ranked much higher than their passing defense. So stop telling half-assed stories to paint your weak-ass narratives when you talk about black head coaches. Because it's not right. It's not right. At all. You look at Joe Judge. Matt Rule. Zach Taylor. None of them are having winning seasons right now. None of them. Nobody. I don't hear nobody calling for their heads. Adam Gase is awful. The Jets haven't won a game. They're 0-9. And he still has support from his GM. Imagine if Anthony Lynn was up there 0-9. Imagine if Eric Bieniemy, if he had, if he was a damn head coach, was up there 0-9. They wouldn't have a job right now. But somehow Adam Gates still was employed at 0-9 and has the GM's full support at 0-9. But Anthony Lynn at 2-6, oh, he got to go. He got to go. The Jets been getting smoked like swishes all, all season. Had Le'Veon Bell, fumbled him. It's a mess in New Jersey. Not New York, New Jersey. Them niggas, they don't play in New York. They play in Jersey. The Jets. 0-9. Just lost a game on national TV on Monday night. And y'all talking about Anthony Lynn. No. No. No way. No way. No way. No way. No way. I don't get it. I mean, I get it. I do get it. I do get it. And I feel like a lot of people don't. And it's a problem. It's a problem. 1986, ladies and gentlemen. That's when we got our first black head coach. The black head coach is an endangered species. That's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth. They didn't they didn't they didn't want us here. They didn't even want to they didn't even want us playing. Didn't want us coaching. Sure as hell don't want us to run a team. And I'm pretty sure all hell will break loose if we get the own one. It's twenty twenty. And we still gotta talk about stuff like this. If you don't see the problem, you blind or you're just naive. Here today. So, if you don't know, currently in the NFL, the National Football League, arguably the biggest league in the in America, um, you know, the, we got the Super Bowl next week. 
you know, that's a big thing. And the ratings have been high this season. And it's been a good year for the league. But if you didn't know, there is currently one black head coach in the NFL. Just one. And that black head coach is Mike Tomlin. He has had 15 straight winning seasons. One black head coach. In a league where most of the league is black, most of the stars in the league are black, we have one black head coach. And some people may not see that as a problem, but most people do. If you don't see it as a problem, you are the problem. You are. That's a problem. How can, as a black man, how can you be good enough to risk it all on the field, but you can't put a headset on and run a football team? That's a problem. And it's 2022. I think that's the biggest thing for me. It's 2022. It's not 2002. It's not 1992, it's not 1982, it's not 1972, it's not 1962, it's 2022. But in 2002, the Rooney Rule was born. And a lot of you 2000 babies were born, but that's neither here nor there. But the Rooney Rule was born in 2002. What's the Rooney Rule? I'll tell you what the Rooney Rule is. Rooney Rule basically states that each organization uh, has to uh, interview a person of color, at least one person of color, um, during their hiring process, you know, when they're looking for a head coach. Now, you would have thought this rule was born out of good faith or born out of, uh, you know, oh, man, we need to make the league more colorful. We need to change things, these things. That's that's not why the Rooney Rule was conceived it's not it's not you know history they they try to a lot of they try to change history and try to make it seem like oh we did this we did this it's not true it's not true because i thought the Rooney rule was done out of good faith i thought oh man they wanted to change some things no no the way the Rooney rule has been spun as if it was done out of good faith for the sake of change is simply not true. The rule came about because outside pressure was applied on the league. Somebody from the outside had to say, yo, this is not right. This needs to change. That's what got the ball rolling on the change. And not just anybody, not just anybody. It wasn't somebody like me. It wasn't a regular person. Uh, Civil rights attorney Cyrus Mary and Johnny Cochran Jr. Yes, Johnny Cochran Jr. If the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. That Johnny Cochran came together and put together a case and threatened to sue the league over its treatment of black coaches and their uh, unfair hiring processes. So the brother who got OJ off had to come down and talked in NFL. That's that's how bad it was in 2002. This was in 2002. 20 years ago. They then came together with John Wooten, 
who connected them with the owner of the Steelers at the time, Dan Rooney. Uh, Rooney was a very progressive owner, right? He was one of the, the good guys, right? Um, in 2002, the owners came together to create the Rooney Rule, which requires each organization to interview at least one candidate of color. Now, on the surface, it's like, okay, they got to interview somebody of color. But just one? Just one? Compared to how many white candidates would you have? That alone is a problem. It's like, here, damn. Like, you know when somebody keep asking you for something? Like, a kid come up to you like, oh, can I have that? Can I have a chip? Can I have a chip? Can I have a piece of candy? Can I do Here, damn. Here. That's what it is. It's not really to satisfy me or even satisfy the person that you're giving it to. It's just to get them away from you. It's just to get them off your back. And that's what they did with the Rooney Rule. We have to get these people off our backs. We have to get these people who think we're racist off our backs. So here, damn. You know what? We'll interview one black candidate. We'll interview interview one person of color. Does that mean we're going to hire them? Does that mean we're going to give them a fair shake? No. But we're following the rule, right? It's always a loophole, right? Are we going to treat them with the same respect we're going to treat our white candidates? No. But it's the ruling rule. At least we're giving them a chance, right? That's what y'all wanted. So let's stay in 2002. Tony Dungy was fired by the Bucks, and Dennis Green was fired by the Vikings after they both had multiple playoff appearances and winning seasons. I mean, Dennis Green had the Vikings at 15-1. and one. Tony Dungy was just coming off a playoff appearance and got fired. It does not matter how good you are. You will never be good enough as a black man in this league. It's simply true. And I told you guys this a while ago, the parallels between black coaches and black quarterbacks. I mean, think about what I talked about last week with the young quarterbacks in the league and how they were rattling off names and and, and they still failed to mention Lamar because of the season Lamar just had that was riddled. The Ravens were riddled with injury. Lamar got hurt. Of course, he wasn't going to have a great season. But people soon forget the, the Ravens were the number one seed at one point in the season. The Ravens had the thriller with the Colts. Beat the Chiefs. He beat the Chiefs too. So, it's just like, bro, if you're not the unanimous MVP like Lamar was, there is no middle ground. You can't have a down season. You can't. You cannot have a down season as a black quarterback in this league. As a black coach, there is no middle ground. You can't go 8-8. Eight and eight. You can't go 6-10. and 10. You can't. It's either you're Mike Tomlin or you're not. That's it and that's all. And even Mike Tomlin with 15 straight winning seasons. told. Remember I talked about this a couple years. What was it, last year when the Steelers started off 10-0? Prior to that, they talked about, is Mike Tomlin on the hot seat? Come on, man. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? So let's move to 2003 when the rule is officially implemented. You could tell it was doomed for the, from the start. Like I said, just because you have to interview uh, one person of color does not mean that the process will be the same as it is for their white counterparts. Does that mean they will actually get the job? But think about that, though. One, 
you're required to just interview one. I'm not saying they did just interview one, but if you're just required required to interview one and you don't have any plans of hiring hiring one, of course you're just going to go ahead and fill the status quo. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna hire uh, interview one. So you compare that to the number of white counterparts that you're, uh, white candidates that you're uh, interviewing. Let's say you have six candidates on your radar, right? And one of them happen to be black, and the rest of them are not black. So they're like point sixteen percent, sixteen percent, like. That's how low. So the odds of you becoming a head coach as a black man compared uh, facing off against five other ones, it's very low. It's very low. Very low. So low that <laughs> not only are your chances slim, but the chances of you having the respect uh, in a real interview are even lower. So Jerry Jones interviewed Bill Parcells for two days. And gave Dennis Green a 20-minute phone interview. And Bill Parcells got the job. So you vetted one guy. Took your time with him. Gave him a two-day interview. That's what you do when you respect somebody as a head coach. And you take your time. You want to make sure he's a good fit for your team. Want to make sure that he's a good fit for what the culture that you got going on and what you're trying to accomplish here. Then you pick up your phone, pick up a telephone. You don't fly Dennis Green out. You don't fly to Dennis Green. You don't bring Dennis Green to your facilities. You don't come show him around. You don't, you don't give him uh, a layout of what your culture is and what you have planned for the future. No, you give him a phone call. How long does the phone call last? 20 minutes. What the hell did you learn in 20 minutes from a man? What do you gain? What information do you gain from somebody in 20 minutes? How can you tell in 20 minutes, oh, this is the guy I want? You can't. That's the point. Because it's not the guy you want. You don't care about the guy that you're talking to for 20 minutes. You don't respect the guy that you're talking to for 20 minutes. You don't want to hire the guy that you talk to for 20 minutes. You know why you talk to him for 20 minutes? Because you, you had to fill something out. You had to fill out the status quo. You had to, fill a, you had to check a box. You had to X out a box. Oh, yeah, check that box off. Now back to what I was doing. That's how I was. That's how I was. That's how I went. You want to get nastier? Let's stay in 2003. The Lions GM at the time, Matt Miller, brought in black candidates to show them the team facility. So he got them in the building. He didn't give them a, call, a phone call. He said, you know what, black candidates, come on out. I'm going to fly you out to Detroit. I don't know why anybody would, would want to come to Detroit, but I'll fly you guys out to Detroit. It's not sunny out here. We don't got no beaches. Um, you know, come on out to Detroit, right? Come look at facilities. Brought them out there just to tell them he was going to hire Steve Mariucci anyway. So you already know you have your guy. You have your guy. You literally know that. You know you have your guy. And still, you bring these guys out, waste their time, waste your time, when they don't have a chance. Just so you look good. Just so you can check your box. That's all it is. It's checking a box. 
And this not this is not just in the NFL. This applies to the real world as well. When they try to diversify diversify these companies, like I like I told you guys, uh, you remember you know in twenty twenty when all the uh, the Black Lives Matter stuff was going on and you know stuff was hot outside and you know then all of a sudden all of these different brands and remember the Blackout Tuesday stuff like it's the same thing, man. It's the same thing. Do these people genuinely care? We don't. I don't we will never know. But it looks good. It looks good. Oh yeah, by the way, uh, I love Mooch. Don't got a problem with Mooch. But Steve Mariucci would end up getting fired two seasons later. I Just to throw that out there. So maybe the black candidates that you brought in just to show them around, maybe they were a better candidate than Steve Mariucci at that time. Maybe they wouldn't have gotten fired in two seasons. But hey, the way the shelf life of a black coach goes, maybe they would have gotten fired in one. Who knows? Who knows? But it's interest, interesting, though, when you look back at the Rooney Rule with it being 20 years ago, you would think that since then, more black head coaches would have gotten hired. <laughs> you would think. Well, boy, do I have a surprise for you. Since 2002, there have only been 16 black head coaches hired. 16. Over the last 20 years. So, with the dozens of hirings and firings, only 16 have filled in the blank over the last 20 years. And the last man standing right now is, of course, Mike Tomlin. The rule hasn't stood the test of time, and neither have blackhead coaches, because their time seems to be cut shorter than their white counterparts. We knew that already. 20 years later, nothing has changed. For a league that's supposed to inspire change, who are they inspiring? I'm not inspired. The black candidates who haven't filled any of these current vacancies aren't inspired. Who are you supposed to be inspiring? You damn sure not inspiring any young black uh, coaches in college or young black head coaches in in high school that may want to move up the ranks or a young black man who a kid who may want to be a head coach when he grows up. You're not inspiring them. There is no light at the end of the tunnel right now. It doesn't look that way. How can you be? How can you aspire to be something? How can you be aspire to be something? When there's like, how can you have any aspirations when there's nothing at the top for you? Look at the league. Look at the league. You can be a player. You can be a quarterback. You can be a running back. You can be a wide receiver. You can be a lineman. You can be a middle linebacker. You can be a safety. You can be a fullback. Be a tight end, but you can't be a coach. You can't be a coach. And it's nice though. Seeing that we've got a couple of new black GMs. That's beautiful. Great. They're not owners. We don't have any black owners. That's where that's that's really you want to talk about change? Change starts at the tippy top. 
at the tippy top. And that's what we're seeing right now. That's what we're seeing right now. So when we get to the B-Flow stuff, we'll talk more about that. But I'm glad that we're seeing what's really going on. But this is stuff we already knew, though. This is stuff we already knew. So, ultimately, my message to the NFL is stop painting end zones, putting stickers on helmets, running ad campaigns. I mean, come on, dog. Y'all got Mary J. Blige performing one song at the Super Bowl. That's a problem. That's the real real problem, too. But (laughs) it makes some actual change, man. Make some actual change because you can talk about it. You can talk about change. You can talk about, uh, you know, what you're trying to do to diversify the league. But if you're not actually doing it, then what does it, it doesn't mean anything. You know, words mean nothing without action. Understand what I'm saying? Like, imagine you build a house, beautiful house, right? Beautiful house. I mean, outside looks great. looks like one of those Disney Channel houses. Right, like just a beautiful house, beautiful, right? But you go inside, or the wind blows hard enough, your house falls down. You can't, there's no foundation, and that's what it feels like. There's no real foundation, there's no real brick, there's no, there's nothing underground, there's nothing holding the league up, holding this diversity movement up. It's just words, no actions. That's it. And deeper than that, to, to, if you really think about it. The Rooney Rule shouldn't have had to be a thing in the first place. Shouldn't have been. Why is it so hard to give everyone an equal chance, man? Why? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Like, is the power struggle really that serious? Like, do you really have to try to keep these men down? Like, is it really that hard for you? To wrap your your brain around a black man being a head coach in the NFL. Why why is the interview process different? Why? You know what I mean? Like give the black candidates the same respect you give the white ones. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm not telling you to hire someone because they're black. I'm telling you to hire them because they're black and qualified. They're black and qualified. That's another thing. If remember when I uh, when Joe Judge got the Giants job, I put down, I gave you the Coach A, Coach B thing, and I ran off their. Uh, list of uh their, their coaching history their resumes and compared to two if a black candidate is obviously more qualified than the white one why why does the white guy get the job right it's all in nine times out of ten it's not what you know it's who you know it's where you come from you, oh you coach with belichick oh you know this you can know this guy oh here you go here you go oh you're under the uh the Shanahan tree. Oh, here you go. Here you go. It's that's how it is. Is is the it's the um. It's like a country club. It's a club, right? You know somebody you're getting in. You got connections. You're getting in. Like, imagine you go to a club, right? You fresh to death. You look good. You you followed all of the uh, all of the um, 
dress code requirements and everything. You're feeling good. And then here come a guy with um, khaki shorts on, um, a polo, a polo button down that's unbuttoned, and he's got a white tee on. His hat's his back, hat's backward, and he's got a pair of Sperry's on. And he goes up into the security guard, just lets him right in. But here you are, fresh to death, icy as hell, and he's giving you a hard time. Then you see him get in the club, and he's dapping up the manager of the club. It's all about what you know. It's not always about what you know or how you present yourself. It's who you know. Unfortunately, that's a real-world thing, too. Don't matter how hard you go in school, how many degrees you have, sometimes it's not what you know. It's who you know. And that's how it goes in the NFL. A lot of these guys are connected. A lot of these guys have friends on coaching staffs. Have friends in the higher um, in the offices, so it's they have an in. Can't say the same for these black candidates. They don't really have ends like that. They don't have families, uh, family members, guys like that's been in. League. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. But they're qualified and can't get a job. Then you got coaches getting second chances, right? Getting second and sometimes third chances. But it feels like once a black head coach is fired, it's back to being a coordinator or whatever they were before they got their shot. I don't have a problem with the Doug Peterson hire, honestly. I would love to know what happened with the Byron Leftwich thing because last week that felt like it was a short thing. It felt that way. But now it, he took apparently he took himself out of consideration. And then like hours after that, the Doug Peters, Peterson announcement came up. So... Who knows what's really going on behind the scenes down there in Jacksonville. But do I really have a problem with the Doug Peterson thing? No, not really. My problem is he's getting another chance. He's getting a second chance. And you got guys like Eric Bieniemy who haven't even gotten their first chance. You understand what I'm saying? That's the problem. These guys, like I saw... Bill O'Brien's name on a list of Bill O'Brien, the guy who traded his team away. Come on, fam. No way. There's no way. Can't be. Can't be. Can't be. Come on, man. What are we doing here? These guys get second and, and third chances, man. Why? Why is that? How? How can you line up? You know, fresh candidates, and then here comes some bum. Who hasn't done anything. He cashes in his money in the bank. And now he's a head coach. Ladies and gentlemen. Let's get right into. This USA Today article. About the scandal at LSU. Um, this article was very hard to read. But this is something that needed to be talked about. I didn't see this being spoken about on many sports outlets like I thought I would. Um, so I'm very, very pleased to be, you know, using my platform to, to to speak about this because it is something that needs to be spoken about, needs to be shared and needs to be heard about because this isn't just an LSU Tiger thing, an LSU, you know, LSU thing, sexual assault. The mishandling of sexual assault reports and cases that's been going on 
across the country, you know, at universities across the country for years. And it's something that needs to stop victim blaming, defending the accused, jumping to defend the accused before you give the victim any benefit of the doubt. All of it needs to stop. So this article, we're going to going to break the article down, discuss it. And yeah, so let's get right to it. So these allegations, these first allegations were made against former LSU running back and former Washington football team running back Darius Geis. So this dates back to 2016. 2016. Member of LSU's diving team told her coach and athletic director that Geis raped her friend after she'd passed out drunk at a party. That following summer, summer 2016, a former female student told two senior athletics administrators that Geis took a partially nude photograph of her without her permission and shared it with others. April 2017. The athletic department received reports of a second rape allegation against Geis by a women's tennis player. The article states, Federal laws and LSU's own policies require university officials to take such allegations seriously and report them to the Title IX Office for investigation, as well as to campus police if the incidents occur on school property. LSU officials either doubted the women's stories, didn't investigate, or didn't call the police, allowing guys to continue his football career. At least seven LSU officials had direct knowledge that wide receiver Drake Davis was physically abusing his girlfriend, a different LSU tennis player, but sat on the information for months while Davis continued to assault and strangle her. This isn't just an LSU Tiger problem, ladies and gentlemen. This doesn't stop with the athletes. Doesn't stop with the athletes. This is not a problem limited to football players. The school determined that a frat member had sexually assaulted two women, but it refused to move him out of classes he shared with one of the one of the uh, one of them and altogether ignored an allegation against him by a third female student. The USA Today uncovered in three cases rather than expelling or suspending male students found responsible for sexual assault. LSU allowed them to stay on campus. The men received deferred suspensions, a probationary period, a probationary period during which they must stay out of trouble. These guys are getting slapped on the wrist. Slapped on the wrist. A probationary period during which they must stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble. They say stay out of trouble as if sexual assault is stealing from a liquor store or getting into a bar fight or academic dishonesty. Something of that nature. This is sexual assault. Real crime. How do you look at sexual assault? How do you look at the victims of sexual assault and say, oh, the consequence of this is 
have a seat for a little while and you be- and you better not do anything else wrong. That's that's how they look at sexual assault at LSU. Like it's just some little thing. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Instead of protecting the victims, they're protecting the predators. Please explain to me how can a, how can you allow someone to continue to take classes with someone that they sexually assaulted? In what world does that make sense to anybody? How can you refuse that? People get moved out of classes for less. Oh, I can't take this class. Switch me out. This class is too hard. I'm going to take this class. Switch me out. I don't really like this professor. Switch me out. Can I switch to a different time? Switch me out. It's that easy. But a young woman is sexually assaulted and she can't get away from the man, from the dude who did it because you won't switch him out of her class? Tell me how that makes sense. I don't understand that. I don't understand that at all. I don't get it. <sighs> Title Nine is the federal law prohibiting sex discrimination in education. When it came to Geis and Davis's cases, LSU failed to get the Title IX office or police involved when federal laws and social, um, excuse me, school policies required it. At least nine LSU football players, at once again, at least nine LSU football players have been reported to police for sexual misconduct and dating violence since Coach Ed Oregon took over in 2016. You know what that tells me, ladies and gentlemen? That under Ed, Gore, under Ed Oregon, you can do anything. You can win a national championship. You can get drafted to the NFL. Become a number one overall draft pick. Beat the hell out of your girlfriend. Rape a woman who didn't want you. Take pictures of an unsuspecting woman and share with your friends. That's what you can do under under Ed Oregon's guidance, ladies and gentlemen. Be a sick, predatorial, and nasty man under the under the direction and guidance of Ed Oregon. That's what you can do. At LSU Does that sound like a program That I would want my kid a part of Would I want to go to LSU And play football And be a, call, a part of that culture Would I want my my sons on that team Hanging with guys on that team Would I want my daughters around them I don't think so Would I want my kid Playing under Ed Oregon Hell no Would I want to be No No way No way For three months LSU refused to release Full campus police reports Involving four players to reporters USA Today sued LSU In mid-October for access To four of the reports On November 13th The university provided them 
provided three of them, but it redacted the names of victims, witnesses, and suspects. LSU continues to withhold police and Title IX records from uh, at least two women who've requested copies of their own files. USA Today and Samantha Brennan sued LSU for access to her full police report, and that uh, case is ongoing. So a couple quotes from the article that stood out to me. Uh, this came from one of the victims who chose not to identify themselves by their name in the article. She said, I just think that honestly, they don't care. The whole system is on the side of the accused. And that's clear, clear as day. It's clear as day. Clear as day. Not only is the system on the side of the accused, the system is on the side of silence. They don't want these young women speaking out. And when they do, all they do is sweep them to the side, sweep it under the rug. Oh, that never happened. So when you when you hear a young woman talk about why she doesn't feel comfortable, you know, why she didn't feel com- comfortable going to the police or or going to, you know, if she's a, if she's a student going to someone on campus. Because nothing gets done. I think we had this conversation a few months ago, maybe not even that long. Yeah, it was a couple of months ago. I think when I was talking about the Washington thing and how no convictions, barely any convictions happen. And how this is real life. It's not like um, a law and order SVU. So if a woman, young woman feels more comfortable telling her, her story on social media, whether it be anonymous or just feeling brave enough to express that on social media. One, don't victim shame. Don't shame someone into thinking that they're wrong for doing that. And don't victim blame. Don't look at the don't look into somebody's story and blame them. Oh, you shouldn't have been. Oh, you could have. No, no, no. None of that. None of that. None of that. None of that. But the system. Is on the side of the accused. They they want to protect these players. They don't want these players to to have this reputation. Oh, or or, or ruin their draft stock or or, or keep them off the field because they got to keep winning at the end of the day. That's that's all they really care about. They don't care about these kids. They got to win. They got to win. Another quote comes from Elizabeth Taylor, a Temple U professor. Who study sexual assault and harassment within athletic organizations. She said. I don't assume that any of these coaches don't understand what's uh, that what's happening is wrong. I think they're making decisions that are best for the success of the program. 
and they're making the decision to put the safety and well-being of other students behind a player's ability to play on Saturday afternoons. And that's not, that's nothing but a fact. It's nothing but a fact. I think when you look at Michigan, Michigan State's situation, um, LSU, a couple other schools, there's no way that higher-ups and coaches didn't know about it. You don't know about what's going on with their team. You see these guys damn near every day. You, you you know who they are, and if they get reported, the, the report the report is coming to you as well. They're going to tell you what happened. Um, whoever they get, what the school is going to notify you. So you you have the decisions. Are you going to cut this guy, suspend him, whatever? But nine times out of ten, that's not going to happen unless it gets big. And that's another thing. A lot of these coaches, man, they're enabling their these guys. They're enabling them. They're enabling. That's this is how we get Aaron Hernandez situations. When you keep letting these kids under under your direction, you keep you, you let them get away with almost anything. No discipline. You let them get away with it. Then they get out of the real get out in the real real world and think they're invincible and think that what they can what they do has no consequence. Because the school that they went to and became a man at that's how they that's how they looked at it. It's like the Wild West. So you look at Darius guys. He clearly has a problem keeping his damn hands to himself because his abusive ways followed him into the league and he was cut from the Washington football team. You know, so it's clear that he was protected and enabled. It's obvious that It's obvious that These players These coaches These these um, Universities they, they don't hold Nobody has any accountability Nobody holds accountability Nobody takes the blame For letting this happen Or for, for You know For knowing this happened And not acting on it And it's sickening. It's sickening. You look at the Samantha Brennan situation. This is the uh, the young lady that uh, Darius guys took the photo of and shared it with uh, people in uh, within LSU. She worked part time in LSU's football recruiting office. This is what she said. She says she didn't press charges. Because she didn't want to ruin Geis' life. The stigma surrounding athletes' lives, you know, it, it has to go. Her life was ruined. And because Geis was held in such a high regard, she didn't want to tarnish that. Instilling that these young men are more important than others is a part of how they continue to get away with stuff like this This is exactly what they do They put them on these pedestals And they make people think that You know They have this God complex It's just like you know, They do something It's like alright I'm not gonna say anything But the, you, you get the other side of that It's like alright She said she didn't say anything 
because she didn't want to ruin his life. But let's say she did say something. Look at the, all of the other reports and you know cases and allegations. These different LSU players, clearly nothing would have happened. So that would have just been a shot in the dark. So it's a lose-lose situation. You say something or you don't situ- you don't say anything. You you still lose. So Samantha, whose picks were floating around, she left LSU. Left. Because she was humiliated and didn't want to be around Geist again. So one one person had to leave their college, had to leave their university, had to leave their job, had to uproot themselves, who did nothing wrong, who was victimized, humiliated, privacy totally just disregarded, disrespected. She was the one who had to go. But Darius Geis, the predator, the sicko, the son of a bitch, who decided to take pictures of this young woman while she wasn't looking, while she was drunk, passed out drunk at that, shared them with the equipment manager, shared them with other people, ends up getting to the LSU office. He got to stay and, and went on to win a national title. That doesn't sound like that is, it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me. But like I said, there needs to be accountability. Ed Oregon, you know, he's number one for me. He's the one leading the team. He he knows right from wrong, I would hope. If he knows his players are out here being nasty predator weirdos, then this is on him too. Anybody who knows about these reports. The rape allegations, the abuse, the sexual assault, the sexual misconduct, all of it. If anybody knows about these, they need to be held accountable too. They're just as much as responsible for this as the guys who did it. This falls on them. Because all it takes is for one report to get, you know, for for one report to be taken seriously. Crack down on all of this and, and it'll it'll stop But then you think about this Hold on before I get to the, what I was about to say Let me finish my point about accountability Anyone Who knew Needs to be fired Because clearly they can't run a safe organization Anyone who prioritizes Football over justice Doesn't deserve to have a job That they enjoy Lastly, the players need to hold themselves accountable. As men, as men, as a man, hold yourself accountable as a man. Alcohol, because you want her, or because you think she owes you something. Let me tell you guys something. These women out here, they don't owe you a damn thing. They don't owe you nothing, bro. You can take her to dinner, you can get her drinks. You can buy her flowers. You can take her on a little weekend vacation. She doesn't owe you anything. Just because you do something nice for a woman doesn't mean she has to sleep with you. 
She doesn't have to do anything with you. But say thank you. She don't got to sleep with you. Stop being thirsty. Respect yourself and respect others. You know, guys, I see a guy a lot, you know, especially today in, in today's climate atmosphere. The thing is, you know, protect women, protect black women, you know, uh, protect women and don't disrespect women. But, uh, but do you guys really mean that, though? Seriously, do you guys really mean that? Because I know a lot of guys who run in some cer- certain circles where guys have been in situations like this and have done similar things to similar women to women and they don't speak up so fellas hold yourself accountable with your own friends if you know somebody in your friend group is been a sicko check them check him and then you probably going to need to go you know report that to somebody i'm sorry bro but this is where we are Accountability fellas Accountability Think about your sister Your mother Your aunt Your grandmother Your cousins Any any woman in your family How would you feel If somebody sexually assaulted them And somebody knew about it And didn't say anything Or you watched the guy Who did it get off no charges How would that make you feel You'd be pretty pissed off right You know I think that The scariest thing to be Is a woman I think being a woman is horrifying As a woman you can't even walk down the street You can't even walk down the street Cat calling Guys don't know when to stop When they, they, don't, they don't know what no means No I don't want your number No you can't have mine do you know how much you know how much violence starts off with a, a simple conversation like that? A simple no. Do you know how many guys can't take a simple no? Guys cyber stalking girls, serial DMs, dog. After the first one, let it go. If she don't reply to your first DM, that don't mean keep hitting it. Stop sending them. She don't want you. Seriously, she doesn't want you. You're being weird. You're being weird, bro. Stop. Being a woman is not, it can't be fun all the time when it comes to creeps like this. So, women, because I know, you know, there are women who listen to this show. I want you all Not only protect yourselves But protect others You know your friends Don't leave your friends alone 
at parties, you know, this is this is common knowledge. Girls know this. And a lot of girls know this, child. They not leaving without their homegirls. Like, yo, I'm yeah, I yeah, you're not taking me away from my girls. Like, nah, don't and it, it look, y'all know no land no man left behind. You shit, girls take that seriously, bro. Don't don't touch my girl in the club, watch your drinks, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Look, ladies, I, I know. All right. I know how nasty it is out here, but Don't hesitate. Easier said than done. But please. God forbid if this has ever happened to any of you or um, you know, if it did if it does if it hasn't, but you know, if it was a situation, don't hesitate to reach out to somebody. Please. Break the cycle. You know? Silence is what they want They want to silence you They want to silence you So stop victim blaming Stop defending the accused And hold these people accountable man. Simple as that This was huge this was big, man. I'm, I'm glad this happened. So starting yesterday, uh, in, uh, players, NCAA players from all three divisions, meaning D1 through D3 in all sports, not just football and basketball, but all sports can benefit from their name, image, and likeness. That's huge. That's huge. Everybody's talking about the NCAA football game. And, you know, yeah, that's cool and all. We finally get to see their names on the back of their jerseys on the game. And, we know which players are who, and it's not just number five and number four and number 16, and, and then we'll, we'll know who the players are. You know, that's cool and all, and I hope they do it right. You know, it's probably going to be, I hope it's better than Madden. But deeper than that, man, these, these kids can hire agents. They can get endorsements, um, and it allows them to do business with boosters. It's about damn time, man. It's about damn time. It's about damn time. These, these, they're not just athletes, they're student athletes. These, these athletes, they go through a lot, you know, they're waking up every day, every morning training, um, keeping their body in shape. They're, they're, they're doing, you know, schoolwork as well. It's, it's a, it's a full-time job being a student athlete, but being a student is a full-time job as well. Let's not, you know, act like they're both not hard, but come on, we know, we know student athletes have it hard, right? We know. We know that. So it's a full-time gig for them. And it's the closest thing to being a pro at the D1 uh, at the D one level. Depending on where you are, what program you're in, you're, you're treated like a pro in a sense. So why not get paid that way? And this is huge for so many reasons. So let's start off with the present. So current student athletes can bring in money that they have never imagined seeing without being a pro. I think that's cool as hell. I think. Because you think about how how hard it is to get into the, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, WNBA, um, whatever sport you're playing, how hard it is to make it at the next level, at the top level, at the upper echelon of that sport. And that's not guaranteed for anybody. It's not guaranteed. You can get hurt. Something can go wrong. Um, you know, your career may not just you may not pan out the way you wanted it to be. You may not get drafted high. You may not get drafted at all. 
might not go to the NFL. Things things happen. Nothing in life is guaranteed, especially when we're talking about sports and becoming a pro athlete. So to give these student athletes the opportunity to make money now while they're in school doing what they love, playing the sport they love, and they don't have to go pro if that's not their true goal, and they don't have to make it, you know, going pro doesn't have to be their way out, have to be their number one goal, and they can stay in school, enjoy college, play the sport they love, and get paid while doing so, and get their degree, and hey, say, you know what, maybe I don't want to go pro, maybe that's not what I want to do. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. You know, and, and and most of them already have a big following on social media, so now they can turn that into money. They can turn it into money. Turn it into money. I think that's cool, man. That's really cool. I don't know how you can hate this. I don't know how you can spin this to make it bad. I don't know. There's there's no there's nothing bad about this. There's nothing bad about this. This is great. This is great. And you think about it. I think it's better than pay to play. You know, pay to play is meaning meaning paying the student athletes, you know, a salary or you know, having them sign contracts when they when they play sports and they're getting paid. Their their job is to be on the field, on the court. I think this is better because I think it will be hard, especially distinguishing, you know, who gets paid what at the D1 level, D2, D3. The pay, the pay scale, how would you even determine that? That would take a long time to even determine that. So instead of pay to play, you just allow them to make outside moves based on who they are. You're, you're paying, you're, they're getting paid because of who they are. That's That makes sense to me. Why not? Everybody can go get an agent. They can get Nike deals, Adidas, Gatorade, Powerade deals. They can, anything you can think of is happening right now. And it's such a great thing. It's such a great thing, you know, and, and as soon as the clock struck 12 yesterday, many of them started inking deals. I mean, the list goes on. Let's start. I want to take a look at a couple. I thought a couple were cool. I mean, as soon as the clock struck 12, um, Haley and ha- uh, Hannah Cavender, the twin basketball players from uh, they, they play at Fresno State. They have signed. They signed a deal with Boost Mobile and Six Star Nutrition. You know, together on TikTok, they have a combined, like their combined page together on TikTok, they have 3.3 million followers. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, uh, Another deal that was made was Arkansas wide receiver Trey Knox. Him and his Husky, uh, Blue, they, they got a PetSmart deal. Uh, let me go over to the uh, Twitter, Twitter page I'm getting this from. This is coming from Front Office Sports. Um, I think they have a thread. Give me one minute. All right, we go. Here we go. It's a couple different tweets. Uh, a kid, a kid from um, the Hurricanes. Hurricanes quarterback, De'Ara King, signed the deal with um College Hunks hauling junk. That that got him twenty racks right there. That's twenty racks. Twenty racks, man. Let's see. The University of Arkansas's NIL policy is unique in the states that student athletes not only can't use team trademarks but can't use school colors. That's fine. That's fine. 
That's fine. You know, they can put loopholes and try to make it harder for the kid. It, it's it's going to happen, man. It's going to happen. It's still going to happen. Um, and, you know, it's other things that they can do other than inking deals. Think about it. You know, it takes pressure. Like I said, it takes pressure off the kids that, you know, leave the school. But it helps kids who don't have, you know, pure intentions on going pro. But now you can monetize things like YouTube or Twitch. So you can have a YouTube channel and monetize while you're there. I mean, listen to this. Now NCAA athletes can monetize NIL through hosting camps, private lessons, merchandise, podcasts, commercials, memorabilia, autographs, streaming, um, paywalls like Patreon, Shopify, Etsy, small businesses, social media. They can do anything. They can do anything. 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 As a kid, I think it's, what's his name? Um, Will Almer. What school is he at? I forgot what school. I think he's at Marshall. Is that Marshall? Yeah, Marshall. He's an offensive line, lineman for Marshall. Now he can play uh, live shows. He's a musician. He can play live shows now and get paid for it. Like, this is cool, man. This is cool. It's well-deserved. It's long overdue. And you now you look... Um, you know, like I said, man, if the NCAA won't pay to play, they might as well allow them to make money from the outside. It's about damn time. So we looked at the now and in the upcoming future, but now let's turn to the past. Could you think about, could you imagine the amount of money that college greats could have made? Like Johnny Manziel, the Fab Five, even Zion. Like these guys could have made bank. From jersey sales, merch sales, autograph signings of um just you know public events, just showing up places. Come on, man. Come on, man. Johnny Manziel was the money man. He come on, you, you guys remember his celebration. He getting in the end zone, he scores, he does something, he, he he's throwing up the money the money signs, man. Shout out to the guys, man. Suits and ties yelling out, pay the guys. Come on, man. Come on. Come on. Come on. Merch. TV money, stadium revenue, all the money that these college athletes bring in, you know, they couldn't they couldn't even get a piece of the pie. Not even a scratch. They couldn't even get a damn lick of the pie. They couldn't even lick the spoon of the batter that made the pie. But now here we are. I think this is a great thing. This is a great thing. And and then I forgot to mention Reggie Bush, but let, let, let's talk about Reggie Bush. And the Trojans. If you have never watched the Trojan War, there's a 30 for 30 on the USC Trojans. Pete Carroll's Trojans with um, Reggie Bush and the and the boys that went to the, uh, the three straight championship. Go watch that, man. It's a full breakdown of what we are talking about here today. So deeper than that, it's time to do right by Reggie Bush. Reinstate his records. And give him back his damn uh, Heisman, man. A wise man once said, USC, would you please give Reggie his trophies? And I hope the NCAA pay the players like coaches. Reggie didn't cheat. He didn't use drugs. Anything of that nature. He was just a kid trying to help his family. It was wronged in the process. Think about this, man. Most of these kids at these big fancy schools, they come from nothing. Some come from the hood. Don't got a lot of money. Not necessarily a broken home, but a home without that many funds. They haven't seen anything. So when an agent or somebody, a booster or somebody that, you know, 
may not be shady and may have good intentions comes along and tries to help them, what are they going to do? You think they're going to say no? You know how hard it would be to say no to a house for your family and some food in your stomach and all you got to do is play football? At the age of 20, 21, 22, 19, come on, man. You know how hard it was? You going to say no? I know I wouldn't. I know I would not. No way I'm saying no to that. No way I'm saying no to that. These kids have been preyed on, and their vulnerability and their life circumstances are their weaknesses, man. So here's what Reggie Bush had to say. Pull up his statement really quick. So I can read exactly what he had to say about the situation. Because it's about time, man. So here's what Reggie had to say. Over the last few months, on multiple occasions, my team and I have reached out to both the NCAA and the Heisman Trust in regard to the reinstatement of my college records and the return of my Heisman. We left multiple messages from uh, Michael Comfort, the president of the Heisman Trust, but instead received a call from Rob Whelan, the executive director, who stated that Mr. Uh, Comfort would not be calling us back and that in any event they could not help us. We reached out to the NCAA multiple, on multiple occasions and received no help or got no response at all. It is on my belief that I won the Heisman Trophy solely due to my hard work and dedication on the football field. And it's also my firm belief that my record should be instated. I mean, what the hell? What the hell? Just because somebody put some money in his pocket, I don't think that made him run faster. Just because somebody put some money in his pocket, I don't think that made him juke any harder. Just because somebody put some money in his pocket, I don't think that made him work out harder. Just because somebody put some money in his pocket, I don't think that made his muscles bigger. Just because somebody put some money in his pocket, I don't think that made him run. I don't think that made him faster. It didn't make him better than anybody else. The hard work, the dedication, the hunger, the drive, the focus that he had on the field, off the field, that's what made him better than everybody else. That's what made him one of the most electrifying running backs, if not college players in all of NCAA history. He didn't use steroids. He didn't use PEDs. He didn't use somebody's piss to pass a piss test. He didn't cheat. Give that man his trophy back and reinstate the records. We saw the tape still there. You can't erase the tape. You can't erase the tape. You can't give us the men in black. Oh, y'all didn't see this. It didn't happen. It happened. We saw it. It wasn't like somebody else was on the field doing it for him. It was Reggie Bush. Do right by him, man. You got to do right by him. You got to correct your past mistakes before we can move forward. That's the only way this all can make sense. Oh, people talking about, okay, so what? It's a, It was illegal now. I mean, so what if it's illegal then and legal now you can't go back? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It happens all the time. Look how marijuana is legal now. Oh, boy. And I'm, I'm going to save that for Monday. But you look at how marijuana convictions are being overturned and stuff. Like, this, is, this, is how it, this is how things, some things work, man. You got to do right by Reggie Bush, man. You, can, you, can't, you can't not do right by him. Yeah, that boy Cole, man. 
that boy cold blooded. I'm not gonna lie. I'm cold. I'm great. I'm great at this. I I does this. I does this like that. Ah, so much fire in those segments, man. So much fire. So much passion. Like you can hear that, and especially like the episodes that were recorded in 2020. It was such a different energy. Like I, I really feel like the energy was different that year. It was so much stuff going on, and like I think about where I was in my life at that time. I just it was so much going on. I just felt like the vibe was just different not bad different but just like damn like it, it just felt more intense I, I just felt like i was more tense in that point in my life and i feel like now fast forward what th- almost three years later since those episodes were recorded i just feel much more comfortable i feel better i feel looser i feel more relaxed but yeah it's crazy man how, how life is you know and, and and having all of this on wax like i can hear the difference it's crazy. It's crazy. I'm rambling. I'm on a tangent here. Don't mind me. I'm just thinking. I'm just reflecting, man. Um, but yeah, man, I appreciate you guys listening. If you stuck around to hear, you know, all the way through, it's a long one. Um, but yeah, this has been episode 199. Make sure you go back and listen to 198. And then I'll see you guys on Tuesday for episode 200. Um, once again, man, shout out to you, the listeners, and shout out to Stadium Scene, T- Stadium Scene TV, of course, and for the 100. 99th time, I'm Eric Lyons, and you have just been electrified.